Welcome once again to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your authentic slice of Dorset life. This is episode two for December 2023. Hello again from me, Terry Bennett. And welcome from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode, I'll be speaking to George Norbert Munns of Dorset-based business Stony Gross about how they came to be one of the leading UK importers for a rare form of Cambodian pepper. It's the pantomime season, and Gay Periwea tells us about her connection with this literally cheering form of winter theatre. Jeremy Whaley tells us about hunting humans for fun. And North Dorset MP Simon Hoare has been promoted to the front benches. What will he be doing? But first, I recently took the opportunity to catch up with George Norbert Munns, the owner of Stony Groves, a business based near Dorchester, which specialises in the import of quite rare and sought-after pepper, only produced in a province of southern Cambodia. George was born in New Zealand, but moved to Cambodia in 2010. I started by asking what was behind his decision to move there. Well, I was living in Melbourne at the time, and I, my brother was living in Cambodia and he was starting a business and I thought I'd go up there and have a holiday because it sounded like a pretty cool place to be and I think from the first moment I got there I was like wow this is really cool and this is like early 2000s so Cambodia was only just sort of getting going as a developing nation and you know the riverside was all dirt red dirt and it was pretty basic and the, the biggest book building was sort of five stories, that sort of things. And and I went up there and I had, actually, I went up there first with dad. I went up with my father to see my brother and kind of liked him to the, did the sort of um, the temples and did the coast and it was beautiful. Anyway, the next year I decided I would go up and have about six weeks up there because I had a lot of leave accrued and I decided to go and have six weeks with my brother. And just sort of loved it and loved seeing all these sort of entrepreneurial people getting up there and doing business and starting businesses and having a you know a real go and it was it was exciting and i think i decided before i left that maybe it would be a pretty cool place to live one day you know back to australia saved money worked really hard over the next year and decided that i'd leave so i kind of had to keep it quite close to my chest for quite some time because the company i was working for usually if you told them you were leaving they'd just say right we'll pay you out off you go but i wanted to finish my job you know i've always been someone to finish things properly and the, the, went to my boss and said look here's the letter i'm sorry i'm leaving I'm going to uh, cambodia but i'd like to stay on and finish the job and he said well if you're going to work hard then you can and that was great and then i left and moved to cambodia and got into it and what were you planning to do in Cambodia at this point? Because presumably peppers weren't on your mind at that stage. No, initially we went, I went up there to start a resort type business with my brother. However, as we kind of went through things, the more and more, the more expensive things started looking and the less appetizing things were. So we started doing bars and restaurants um, and we ended up with quite a few of them. And it was great, you know, with lots of staff and lots of customers. And it was a really exciting time in Cambodia and Phnom Penh and the capital. And we used to go down to the coast of the weekend, down to Kep and Kampot. And it was a it's, a, it's a wonderful place with wonderful people. Now, while you were over there, you stumbled across this particular type of pepper called Kampot. Now, I'll admit that I hadn't heard of it, but I'm, I'm no chef and probably just my ignorance. But you came across this particular type of pepper, which is highly sought after around the, the world's finest kitchen. Kampot region produces about 100 tonnes of Kampot pepper a year. You know, that, that's world, world versus worldwide is about a million tonnes a year. So we're talking really, really low volume but incredibly high quality you know 
the, the peppercorns have got a protected geographical indicator, so you know they don't just hand those out. All right. So you became aware of this this pepper that was uh, obviously very high quality but low volume. Was that something that was already available to UK chefs? Yeah, there's a, there's a few of us, few of us, few of us that bring it in. So yes, it's on the market, but one of the products hasn't been on the market terribly long. The salted fresh Campbell pepper. I started bringing that in in March. However, the year before we got the samples sent over. And we had just recently had COVID. Anyway, we tasted the samples and thought it was hideous. And we put that to bed and sort of didn't think about it again. But then in March, March this year, I said to my wife, I said, maybe we should get, maybe we should get that pepper again. Maybe we should get that salted pepper again, that salted fresh pepper, because we noticed that our taste buds have changed a lot. And they took sort of, I think they probably took four or five months to you know come back to what they were anyway we got the pepper again and we thought oh my goodness we've got to do this so i bought in four kilos thinking with my with my first order of the year and i thought god i hope i can get rid of this well that four kilos went in a weekend then i thought okay well then maybe that was a maybe it was a bit lucky so i bought in 10 that went in a couple of weeks so then i had to get quite serious and we've gone through a lot of that pepper this year it's been fantastic so you moved back to the UK from Cambodia. I say you moved back. You moved to the UK from Cambodia in 2020, was it, or thereabouts? Uh, what, what 2018. Was... 2018. 2018. We had, we had Christmas in New Zealand and then came back. Then we had a daughter in October 2019. And then we saw the COVID sort of coming and thought, my goodness, this is, this is serious. This is in sort of November, December, early December 2019. And then we had the lockdown and we had a lockdown baby. You know, we didn't talk to anyone for two years. You know, we're really social people. We, we always loved having parties at our bars and restaurants and, and Sack Lane in Cambodia. And we didn't talk to anyone for two years. So I wanted to do something that was social, something that I could go and talk to people and see people and engage with people again and, you know, have some laughs and have some fun because it was, it was a pretty miserable time for lots and lots, well, for most people. So that's, that's kind of, how we got to what style of business it was going to be what the business was going to be what the products were going to be we didn't really we got to sort of i think late 2020 and i was we did some numbers on a number of things and i said to my wife one day i said what about the pepper what about campot pepper she said oh you should do campot pepper and i said you know what? i think i think i'm going to do campot pepper i think that's what i'm going to do so i spent the next sort of what we spent um my wife's a graphic designer so we spent the next months looking at what the brand was going to be and looking at what sort of style it was going to be and it turned out that you know being a luxury gourmet product the packaging and the 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 branding had to be pretty smart and clever so we spent a lot of time on you know logo work and branding and that sort of thing to get to where we are today which i which i feel is a pretty strong luxury style brand in about april 2021 we were sort of allowed out again, if you remember, Terry. And I hadn't been able to take my daughter. We hadn't been able to take our daughter to the beach because of the lockdowns and that sort of thing. So then I think it was about April. Anyway, we went to the beach and got to the beach and there was a ledge going down to the beach, which was about a metre high. Anyway, I sort of popped off onto the beach with my daughter and got her shoes off and literally so excited because I was about to get her in the water. You know, never been in the sea before. And... I heard this almighty scream and I thought, oh my goodness, that's my wife, Ellie, screaming. And um, I turned around and she she was lying on the ground. So I ran to her and thought, oh my goodness, she said, I've fallen off the uh, the cliff, off the le- ledge. So I picked her up and 
moved her very slowly and noticed that she had a gash in her head, a big gash. Anyway, what transpired was I drove her to the hospital. We decided that she was okay. But as a result, she actually uh, suffered some pretty bad head trauma and slept for 22 hours a day for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I had to drop everything to look after Annabelle and had to delay the launch of the business until such time that she was better that, you know, she could look after our daughter and I could go back to work. And that took months and months and months. So we ended up launching the business at the Poundbury Food and Arts Festival um, in August of 2021. Okay, so it's still relatively new. You made the point earlier that the supply of this particular type of pepper is quite limited internationally. Do you have any problems getting it? Uh, no, no problem getting it. We've got a, we've got a great supplier and um, we work very close with them and they're fantastic. We're lucky. We're very lucky to have a great supplier. And who do you typically supply to? Who are your customers? Well, I've I started off the business for the last three years has been all about getting in front of people at markets, food festivals and food fairs because online marketing, from my experience, is, is quite expensive. Whereas to get a pitch at a food festival is relatively inexpensive. You know, as long as you've got a good product and your turnover is good, then it is inexpensive. You know, there's no cost for me for staff time because I'm only me. But we're now sort of moving towards more trade and hopefully some wholesale. So we've been getting in the hands of people like Matt Aid, Gordon Ham, Ramsey's right-hand man. Lorna McNee now takes Pepper. She's a Michelin star chef. Um, so we're getting it in the hands of the right people. Tom Aitkins has got it. Mark Hicks has been, he's going to be putting um, a recipe out with the Telegraph with it. So we're trying to get it in front of as many people as possible, um, chefs, restaurants, cafes, so that then, you know, they can get it in front of their customers as well. And for those of us who've never sampled this particular type of pepper, what, what's special about it? Just tell us what, what's, what makes it stick out from every other pepper. Well, there, there are four peppers, really. So you've got your black campot pepper, your red campot pepper, your white campot pepper, and the salted fresh campot pepper. And then I also smoke, smoke the black pepper as well. I mean, our, our, our best seller, which is sort of 60% of our sales, the salted fresh campot pepper, it's, it's been taken fresh off the vine and it's been preserved in salt. So it's soft and, and, and chewy and delicious and, and, and it's got a bit of a bite, but, you know, great for a gin and tonic, great for a seafood linguine. I've been stuffing it in cheese and baking it in, baking it in the oven. Um, just just a delight. And, and as people say, you know, it's like, it's like nothing they've ever tasted. I, I was at a food festival, um, I think it was the Guildford Food Festival, and, and the chefs came up to me who were doing the chef demonstration. And they said to me, you know, that pepper, that salted fresh pepper, can I have a bit? And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. They're like, do you know what happened yesterday? I said, no, no idea. They said, um, we were doing our chef demonstration, and we asked people, we said, has anybody found anything you know, special here? Has anybody found anything you know, nice? And a guy stood up and he said, I haven't just found something nice. I've found the best thing that I've ever tasted in my life. And he held up a packet of salted fresh campot pepper. Very good. Well, that's a great advert, isn't it? It is. I had a lot of people coming to me that day. <laughs> is it desperately expensive? You can buy 100 grams of pepper at the supermarket for at little for a pound. My salted fresh campot pepper is 22 pounds a pop, but it's 60% of my sales this year. People say they just have to have it. And I think it's fair market value. I mean, we do we do at food festivals and at online, we do two pouches for £32. So that's 16 each. We don't charge for shipping because we don't believe in shipping charges. We sort of absorb that ourselves. So it's fair market value. 
And if, I should have actually sent you some, Terry, before we did this, so you could have tasted it. I'll send you some. I'll send you some later <laughs> okay. on. I look forward to that. And the business is obviously going well. You've built it up from nothing, and you, you, you're doing well with it. Where is it going from here? Have you got uh, plans to expand further, or are you quite happy with uh, how things are? Yes, yeah, so over the winter, this is kind of going into our, I've finished markets now, and then from here until sort of March is maybe some product development. So we're probably going to do some more spice blends because they've gone they've gone really well this year. You know, the, the zesty Campot spice blend with Greek lemon thyme, which is absolutely delicious, um, black Himalaya, black uh, Campot pepper and Himalayan rock salt, they've gone, that's gone really well. And then the, the classic Campot spice blend, which has got Aleppo chili from Mexico, black Campot pepper and Himalayan rock salt, that's sort of a traditional meat dipping sauce. You add lime juice to it, um, absolutely delicious, or maybe with a meat rub, maybe in a salad dressing. They've gone really well. So we're probably going to do look at doing maybe four more of those so we'll have six spice blends and then if and then a few more salts we're looking at salts first and maybe four more salts different flavors um infusions that sort of thing okay and if people would like to try some of this you don't have a shop do you but you've, you've got a website yes stonygroves.co.uk and we always include shipping in our prices we don't you don't get to the end and click click your address and then suddenly there's 4.99 on top you mentioned before seafood linguine as being one particular suitable dish for campot pepper. Any others that people might uh, think of? Yeah, absolutely. Like our white pepper is fantastic in sort of a creamy pasta sauce, um, or maybe bake a put a bit put a, a fillet of salmon um, in the oven for twelve minutes with some with some uh, brown sugar and butter, a bit of salt, and then after twelve minutes, take it out and then put the white pepper on. I, n- I never put our peppercorns. In a in a pan in a dry pan or in the oven because I think it damages them. You know the red the the white pepper, which is the inside of a black peppercorn. They take they dunk them in water for forty eight hours and then remove the husk. Um, the husk is what has most of the heat, like the pith and the chili. But the white the white peppercorn sort of tastes like citrus and rosemary. Absolutely delicious. The red pepper I use with some mashed potato, maybe some um, maybe some rice. I do a little fun salad in the um, because that's sort of the red pepper is sort of sweet like dates and honey, but it's quite hot on the palate. I do quite a cool sort of summery salad with some mozzarella, watercress, balsamic glaze, olive oil, strawberries, Himalayan rock salt, and that red pepper to give it a bit of heat. It's quite cool. And then black pepper. I use black pepper. I use a lot of black pepper. I'd probably go through 100 grams of black pepper a month. You know, in a gravy, 25 turns of red, 25 turns of black. Put black over eggs. They're delicious. I mean, they're all. They're all so special and they're all so individual, but they come from the same plant. We're recording this just before lunch and um, you're, you're, you're making me hungry, George. So. <laughs> That's what my customers say. They say, can I come and eat at your house? And I say, yeah. absolutely, anytime. <laughs> anyway, George, thank you very much for telling us about um, the business and the, the joys of Campot Pepper. Thank you very much, Terry. Thank Th- you. Thank you. That was George Norbert Munns from Stony Groves, and their website is stonygroves.co.uk, stony being S-T-O-N-Y, no E in it. I should add that there's some great photos of the Campot pepper and the fields in which it's grown in the online edition of the BV magazine. December is, of course, the month when the pantomime season is in full swing. Going to a pantomime and seeing our familiar and favourite characters, seeing all the wonderful costumes and sets and joining in the fun with the it's behind you and the oh no it isn't and groaning at the terrible jokes is a great way to take our minds off the gloomy and dark winter weeks. 
And these days, the panto season stretches right up to Easter and beyond. Gay Periwear knows a thing or two about pantomimes. She's been to rather a lot of them over the years. I asked her why she's such a fan. Well, I don't think it's such being such a fan. It's just over the years, I seem to have done a, a huge number. I mean, I remember going to the first one at the pavilion in Bournemouth when I was quite a, a small child. Uh, and it seems to have happened ever afterwards. And why it, it is now is that once, very foolishly, while I was working for the Western Gazette, I said very sort of grandly and pretentiously, oh, I believe that all pantomimes should be covered by the local press because they do so much work. You know, they, they raise funds for village halls and the roofs and things like that. And I have lived to regret it. There was one year when I did 34 pantomimes, which was a little And you bit never wish to see another one well, well, for a long not, time. not quite that, but it, it did seem a bit excessive. Also, it's, it's hell on your throat because... I do believe in joining in, and by the time you've joined, you've yelled behind you, and oh yes he is, and oh no he isn't, and, and hissed and booed enough, you, you do become quite hoarse by the end of it. So you, you, uh, you created a rod for your own back then, Absolute, didn't you, Gail? Absolutely, I did, absolutely. So, um, you know, there was a time when I would literally, after Christmas, because you do all the professional ones before Christmas and the, uh, and the amateur ones after Christmas, and so I would be, I'd find myself going out over um, Somerset levels and goodness knows where, uh, uh, out, into the, out into the fog and the snow, until sometimes into late March or even, even um, April. Uh, and they start ever earlier. They start now in, at the end of November, so there's a, there's a lot to do. But it, it is a, a uniquely um, English uh, uh, tradition, isn't it? It absolutely is. Um, I, I was taken once to a pantomime in, in Sacramento where they thought they'd got it right. They wanted to do a sort of an English English thing. And they'd been told that uh, the, the origins of pantomime are Commedia dell'arte, so they had actually all dressed up in medieval outfits and they didn't, didn't get the idea at all. It, it was very strange. No, it's, it's very English. So what, what's the origin of the pantomime then? Well, I think it, it does come from this... Uh, this Commedia dell'arte, but also from the uh, from the working men's clubs, from the uh, from in, in the north. So the, the the broad comedy that comes from the the dames has has evolved over the years, and it is now uh, there. There are all sorts of different dames. There are the, the sort of the very great ones, uh, who obviously were Victorian, and and now they've come through television comedians and uh, people who really want to, to dress up. So this year we have, uh, locally we have... Uh, blokes who want to dress up as women. Blokes who want to bless up, dress up as women, uh, which was a, a different thing. So that some of them, we, we have drag queens this year. We have some of the uh, RuPaul people um, who are coming in to do that. And other, I, the first, I first saw Danny LaRue as one of the ugly sisters at the pavilion in Bournemouth years and years ago. He must have been wonderful. He was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And we were, we were lucky, we saw Jack Tripp, who was probably the greatest dame of the, of the 20th century. Um, we saw his last performance in Plymouth and he was just heartbreaking. He, he would do Mother Goose and he'd have you in tears. And some of them now are, are just, you know, sort of fat women in the dress. So uh, it, it is broad comedy. 
have. There's so much tradition. There are some there are some routines that happen in literally every pantomime these days, and some of them you can see. Chris Harris, who who died a few years ago, great great dame, and and was in Bristol and then in Bath. He um, devised a few routines that that stay on now. So whenever you see the the ghost story, when they go. We'll have to sing it again then, won't we? You know, that's Chris. And he did a wonderful thing that was um, called Busy Bee, which involved spitting at people. You can't do it anymore, they won't let you, but it was, um, it was definitely Busy Bee, Busy Bee, what have you got in your hive for me? And then, of course, you had your mouth full of honey and you, you spat it at the nearest person, but... Uh, no health and safety won't let that go through anymore. <laughs> no, I'm sure. Hey, but you, you mentioned the great dames of the Victorian era. Were those considered to be the greatest dames? I think it depends on, on current tastes, really. Uh, there are people who will tell you there are. I, I remember when I first sort of started reviewing things, being horrified by the fact that some of the some of the national and and you know really famous reviewers would always say oh x is nothing like as good as somebody or other who had died 50 years beforehand and i'd think how ridiculous how on earth can we be expected to do this now i've reached this uh, age i realize that it's very difficult to avoid doing just that <laughs> Sad but true. Um, uh, so, uh, of of all the uh, the pantomimes that you have seen up and down the country, I assume since you've yes. mentioned you know Bristol, not yep. too far away, Plymouth, um, Bournemouth, not too far away either. It, which is there any one that actually sticks in your mind as having been outstanding? Well, as as I, as I said, I think Chris Harris was a fantastically good dame. Um, the other thing that you you see is people who are sort of growing up through there, there's a there's a one of the comedians at Yeovil this year for example started his career in um, in Exeter where he worked with another dame or he was then the dame and and, and Gordon was the knockabout and you've seen how he has developed his character over the years so uh, every year there is a, a bit more character development and it's it's interesting to see how that happens and then some of them graduate to become dames you can see them you know putting on the petticoats finally and that's quite interesting because those are obviously people who have absolutely learned their craft and that's i think very important you need to know how to do pantomime you can't just come into it and think okay i can I can take on all this. Although, having said that, I remember seeing a pantomime in Bournemouth some years ago when the the baddie from Neighbours, uh, so an Australian actor, came in to do pantomime, and there was that feeling, oh, well, you know, he's a big name. Uh, it's bums on seats, which is very important for theatres at this time of year, and what he'll do, anybody's guess, but it doesn't matter. And he was brilliant. He took it all on perfectly. He got he got it from the moment he started. He had just the right just the right touch, and it needs to be a light touch. It is it, it is full of ritual, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. So there are there are things that you will always see. I've I've just been I've just been explaining pantomimes to a foreign friend who's never been before and uh, coming to see uh, coming to Bath with us actually tomorrow. 
and explaining to her that you know you will have a ghost scene you will have a scene where you you've got a bench and you'll be sitting on the end and one person will get up so the other person will fall over the the good fairy will always come in down right and the baddie will always come in down left and you must you must always hiss the baddie and boo the baddie as much as you can and the fairy will always win in the end and you'll always be asked whether you want to join a gang from the usually the knockabout comedian and you'll have to probably look out for some art, article that he's left on the stage and warn warn people when someone comes near it you have to suspend disbelief you have to you have to you have to go with the right attitude there's there's nothing else quite like it in terms of audience participation is there absolutely nothing absolutely nothing although um, we've read, I think, this year a lot about audiences trying to join in with musicals and things like that. They they go to that could be a wee bit Mamma Mia musicals and goodness knows what, and they join in and sing and get very very angry if they can't. I mean, people have been thrown out of cinemas, uh, thrown out of theatres across the country for doing that this year, and that's exactly what you're encouraged to do in pantomime. You and it is usually the first time that kids go to live theatre. So I, I do believe that it needs to be magical so that they will get a love of this sort of performance. But if they start now thinking, well, we join in with every song that's coming, um, bit of a problem. I have to say, uh, Gay, that there is one person I would love to see in a pantomime, and that is, of course, Craig Revel Horwood from Strictly. Yeah. I bet he's absolutely he's splendid. Apparent, he's apparently have, you, wonderful. you haven't seen him? I haven't seen him. He has done two reasonably locally in the last few years. So um, I, think it, I think it was quite interesting after the lockdown because, of course, that changed everybody's lives. And you didn't go to pantomime. And there were murmurs as to whether or not it would come back strongly. And uh, happily, I think it has. Uh, so people are still are still going and and still, um, yeah. There was one thing I was I was going to mention to you. I remember some years ago going to a pantomime in Salisbury, and and there's always a pantomime song at the end. Well, what happens is you know the 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 romantic duo get together, and then they all everybody has to go off the stage and. Um, change into their what they, what's called their walk down outfits so they come down at the end for their applause and during that time a song is sung and people are dragged up onto the stage and asked to sing and asked silly questions and things like that and often they use pop songs increasingly pop songs and and the older i get the more i realize i don't actually know what these songs are but sometimes there are original songs and there was one written in salisbury years ago uh, must have been for Dick Whittington, and it was, it was called, no, it must have been Jack and the Beanstalk, and it was called Going, Going, Gone. And I still remember that song quite clearly. Please don't ask me to sing it. Uh, but it's one of those things that have absolutely stuck in my head, and I wish more people would use this song because it's so good. It's so much better than, than the advertising songs which you get. You have uh, ones where every fast food joint is is put into this and you all have to stand up and pretend you're a a pizza hut or a mcdonald's chicken or something or other and, and that's that's what you're supposed to do I, I like the original ones have you ever taken part in a in a panto yourself oh, yes 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 locally um, well in christchurch i was fat fairy flow on a flying trapeze i had um, a tutu and 
uh, Doc Martens, and my wand was a pickaxe with with tinsel around it. A genuine pickaxe. Yes. Oh, yes. health and safety wouldn't allow that. No, no that was surely. A long time ago. <laughs> uh, no, we we and and also we wrote a pantomime when Christchurch's Regent Centre when it was it was a bingo hall. Well, it was it was a theatre and cinema when I was a small child. I was brought up in Christchurch, and. Um, and then it became a bingo hall and then it was closed down. The council took it over and I was one of a committee. We, uh, and we started, we opened it as a theatre and arts centre again. And um, I wrote the first pantomime, which was a Cinderella. And that was a long time ago. That was in the late 80s. And we had a friend who was an opera singer and we, um, we put some opera in there. She played Cinderella. Um, and now they do it in all sorts of pantomimes, but I, I think maybe ours was first, I don't know. Um, but it was, it was incredibly successful. Uh, it really was. They, they were great. The, the cast were fantastic. We had a lot of local people. We had a little boy who, who played something or other and had to sing Where Is Love. No, he was a mouse, that's right, and he had to sing Where Is Love to Cinderella. So it was, it was, a, bit, it was a bit off the wall. And um, it was so popular that we put on four more nights of of performances and we raised enough money to buy new curtains for the theatre stage which was incredible in those days so uh, so it was it was good yes and and yes I, I I gather you have a confession to make well I don't know whether I should but I suppose in the old days when well when I was when I was in my early teens you know it was it was absolutely not in any way fashionable to um to talk about sexuality and all those things as it is now. And so the first time I fell in love with, with was with a principal boy who were always played with by girls in that time in a pantomime in Bournemouth. And she was a German actress and uh, she had, um, she had a red car and its number plate was VYK 543 isn't that ghastly still to remember it and I remember coming home being completely and utterly enraptured and my father who had lost most of his first family during the war I was telling him how wonderful it all was and he said the only good Germans are dead ones so uh, it kind of uh, I remember bursting into tears and running away and crying and not being able to speak to him for days and but I think uh, perhaps that that degree of ambiguity was uh, a release for me at that stage. So um, would you describe yourself, since you go to so many pantos, as possibly a panto queen? No, a dame. A dame. <laughs> I, I am actually working towards a damehood. I think that if I were to get uh, some sort of title, it would be the only one I could have, because I've probably been to... 500 or more pantomimes, probably a lot more actually over the years because I have been reviewing them um, in, in various forms. Uh, all over this area in Cambridge, in Kingston when I was working there and uh, yeah. Gay Piri Weir, hoping to become a genuine dame, not a pantomime one. Hunting Humans for Fun by Laura Hitchcock Lifelong kennelman Jeremy Whaley's hunting narrative shifts from tradition to innovation, prioritising the hound's skill over the hunt's end. I was deeply anti-hunting, says Jeremy Whaley, not the conversation opener expected from a lifelong huntsman and huntmaster. 
but as a child I loved my pony and I really loved dogs. At the yard where I kept my pony there were children who hunted and I'd see them come back muddy and tired but they always had that look in their eye that said that they had the best day. Eventually they persuaded me to give it a try and I was just fortunate that I was out with the huntsman Jim Bennett and the old Barkley pack. It was a spectacle. The horses and the chaps in their mustard coats, but most of all, I instantly recognised that one of these men had a magical, and I mean that literally, bond with all these dogs. They were all looking at the huntsman and listening to him. It was spellbinding. Then we moved off, and I watched that man working all those dogs, off leads, running around barking, and yet they were still under full control. I was hooked. I was an academic and sporting failure. Horses and hunting became my mental lifesaver. Jim was a professional huntsman and I was lucky enough to hunt regularly with him throughout the rest of my childhood and my early adult years. He taught me and showed that it was hound work and the relationship with his hounds that was important to him, not killing foxes. Just as, for a farmer, raising animals is a passion and the killing of those animals is merely a necessity for feeding humans, it was only ever about his love of hounds, never a passion to kill a fox. That was what set me on the path to 23 years hunting with foxhounds. Like Jim, I loved the hounds, but I never enjoyed killing the fox. I was master and huntsman of the New Forest, then the Chiddingfold, Leckenfield and Cowdray, and then the Berwickshire Foxhounds in Scotland. Then the law changed and the Protection of Wild Mammals Scotland Act 2002 came into force, which, due to loopholes in the legislation, allowed an unlimited number of dogs to flush foxes to guns. I'd not seen anything like it before. I couldn't stomach it. So I looked for alternatives. Drag or trail hunting is too artificial for me. There's no challenge in what is effectively following a railway line of scent. Then I saw Nick Wheeler from Kokum Bloodhounds, one of the oldest bloodhound packs in the UK. I went out with them, loved it, and realised it was my answer. Hunting humans with bloodhounds is referred to as hunting the clean boot. It's not fox hunting by another name. They're completely different sports. Just as somebody who's good at squash may not enjoy tennis, clean boot hunting with bloodhounds is a sport in its own right, with its own skills and challenges, says Jeremy. The point is, the hunting of most wild animals with hounds is illegal. It doesn't matter if it was bad law. It is what it is. It's not going to change, and if we want hound sports to survive, we need to not only move on and hunt within the law, but to do so in a way that seeks to impress and educate the average tolerant man, woman, or any other of the myriad genders that currently exist on the Clapham Omnibus. I started the Borders Bloodhounds Hunt in 2002, and the more I learned, the more I loved it. Due to a change in circumstances, I had to move back south, so I found kennels to rent and brought the hounds with me. I started the Southdown Bloodhounds, the SDB, in 2004 on an absolute shoestring budget. One day we had 126 riders turn up, and we realised we really needed to set up a booking system. We usually average around 30 riders a hunt now, and most simply pay a cap to attend for the day. We start in August with tub hunting, because the quarries are a bit tubby that early in the season, and we do four or five hunts of around a mile each in a day to get the quarry, the hounds and the horses fit. We have the formal opening meet in the middle of October, and by then we will have three or four longer hunts of two to three miles, up to five miles if I can manage it. The routes are mapped in advance, and I try to always vary them, even if we've been to the same place before. 
The hounds learn a route very quickly, so we always try and make each one different. We'll go anywhere. Hampshire, Wiltshire, Dorset, Somerset. We've just been up to Fife in Scotland. In fact, the Fife and the Lauderdale hunts are both now converted to a bloodhound hunt. Hunting human quarry with bloodhounds has all the vagaries of the proper chase. You can see them working the trail out. It's not just a case of the quarry running as fast as they can along the route that's given to them. It's far more complex than that. Last week, we had six quarry out as a group, and really that's too many. The hounds just flew without checking. Obviously, there were some who enjoyed a fast ride, but for me, it's far better just to make life difficult for the hounds. Just two quarries and let the hounds struggle a little. We used to hunt a policeman. He was really good. One time we came up into a really big stubble field and I knew the quarry should have gone halfway down before turning right. But the hounds flew along confidently, shooting past where the quarry should have turned. We made it to the end of the field and then the hounds checked. I watched them casting about and started to wonder if the quarry had got lost somehow. Then just one individual hound, subtle, started to move her way back up the line. I called the rest of the pack and they followed her. Halfway back across the field, they roared off in the right direction. I spoke to the policeman afterwards, and he said he decided to cause us some problems. He ran all the way to the end of the field, doubled back to retrace his own steps up the line, and then cut left across the field as planned. That was brilliant. How big is the Southdown Bloodhounds pack? Well, I normally have 18 couple in kennels, says Jeremy, and I take 12 to 13 couple to hunt. A pack of hounds is always counted in couples. Two hounds are a couple, and one hound is one hound, unless he's with others when he's naturally half a couple. It's traditional for a huntsman to take an odd number of hounds out for a day's hunting, so he might take 20 couple or 41 hounds. Everyone is welcome to join the Southdown Bloodhounds. Riders must book ahead via the website, but anyone is welcome to attend the meets on foot and follow or to become quarry. The SDB hunt is renowned for being welcoming to newcomers and isn't overly concerned about the right hunting dress or people understanding hunting terms. There are always hunt members to buddy up with, whether you're riding for the first time or watching on foot. You don't need references to join the SDB. Details are all published on the website and Jeremy encourages anyone to come and experience it for themselves. To be honest, we take the pee out of each other a lot, and that's not accidental. We really want people who will come along, muck in and have fun. We're not frightfully grand and we're not there to impress anyone. We're just ordinary people who love our animals, enjoying our sport. And Jeremy is always looking for new places to hunt. If you'd like to see these hounds hunting humans across your land, he'd be delighted to hear from you. And the website is southdownsbloodhounds.com. And finally for this episode, North Dorset MP gets an upgrade to the front benches. Laura Hitchcock recently spoke to Simon Hoare, the new Minister for Local Government, officially the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State in the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities. I'd not long arrived at my flat in London and was just warming up some soup when the phone rang, he says. I saw it was the Chief Whip and obviously my first thought was, what have I done now? But he simply said, the PM would like to know if you want to join the front benches. Obviously, the correct second thought then is, doing what? He then offered me the position of Minister for Local Government, and I had a quick yes or no decision to make. Obviously, I said yes, but then had to ask, so what happens now? It's a massive honour, of course it is, but it's also new to me. I had no clue what the protocol is. No one prepares you for it. 
I had two calls in fairly rapid succession. The first was from the propriety and ethics team, who asked all manner of interesting questions about whether I'd been a terrorist or had ever been convicted of money laundering and the like. Having passed that one with flying colours, I've had a rather dull existence apparently, I was called by the permanent secretary to confirm the appointment and to let me know my private secretary would be waiting for me at the Houses of Parliament at 9.15 the following morning. And sure enough, there he was, waiting in the foyer with my badge. He took me to my office, which already had my name on the door. The computer was already set up for me, as was my diary already full of appointments. People talk about hitting the ground running, but I'm not sure I'd really done it at such speed before. In theory, I know that as soon as the king approves the appointment, you're it, effectively. But when it actually happens, the sheer speed of it is astonishing. It wasn't until two hours after the first phone call that I realised I probably ought to call my wife. The whole thing takes some getting used to. I was in a meeting this week and was presented with three possible options for a course of action. I suggested that one was the right way to go and a few notes were taken. I then asked how we might progress that, who it needed to be passed through to get approval. And I was met with a slightly surprised face. Turns out my decision had just allocated £190 million. That's how it works. I do have to say a word about the efficiency of the civil servants who have met me with overwhelming warmth, help and kindness at every step. And I have been touched by the number of colleagues from right across the House who have congratulated me. It's such an encouragement when even the opposition say it's about time instead of why on earth. I must be doing something right. Simon started his political career as a parish councillor before becoming an elected local councillor for 12 years. He's confident that with his experience in working in local government, he has an excellent understanding of his brief. It's hugely, hugely exciting, and I'm keen for the challenge. I think we all as human beings enjoy being stretched. To be honest, I still get a thrill just parking my buttocks on the back benches. Now I've a front row seat, and I have to admit the house looks completely different from down there. Instead of looking down on it from up the back, I'm inside it. It's much smaller and far more intimate. But I cannot forget that I'm only here to do this job because I was first elected by the people of North Dorset and my first duty of care has always been and always will be to them. In France, a civil servant is placed into a constituency when an MP is promoted to look after matters previously in his care. But we don't do that in England and rightly so. I think it's so important to stay anchored and connected with your base it's enormously important in everything we do. But what exactly is the Minister for Local Government actually responsible for? What will the new job entail? It's a vast remit, says Simon. I'm now responsible to Parliament for local funding, special educational needs, in partnership with the DOE, of course, adult social care, planning, alongside the Planning Minister, election law, ensuring systems are in place to guarantee public confidence in a democratic vote, preventing any we-was-robbed-it-was-rigged shenanigans in the UK. I'm also the Minister for the Covid Inquiry and the Commons Minister for Faith, which means I'll be taking through the Holocaust Memorial Bill. Today I'm in a Westminster Hall debate on heritage pubs and later have a meeting about local government funding on the Isle of Wight. But I like to be busy. The devil makes work for idle hands and all that. I think we all like to be busy, don't we? Just as long as we get tangible results. Well, that's it for the final edition of the podcast for 2023. We hope that you found at least a few things of interest in the items we've brought you. For now, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And until next year, it's goodbye too from me, Jenny Devitt. 
and we both wish you a happy and prosperous 2024.